So when I first started this podcast, traditional Chinese medicine was always one of the topics that I wanted to touch upon. And I have a sort of weird relationship with this topic because on one hand, you could say that I'm culturally exposed to the ideas found in traditional Chinese medicine. So for example, when I eat certain foods, I would think, okay, the essential quality of this food is either hot or cold or spicy or et cetera, et cetera. And that will have certain repercussions on my body just because that's what I've been told. That's what uh, context I've been around. But on the other hand, as someone who has grown up in the West as well, I've been exposed to other Western ideas and they contradict. So for example, if you stick needles in yourself at certain points, does it actually help you? And this is a question I, I still don't really know. Uh, this podcast I did with Cole, who is a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine, it definitely gave me more of a perspective from a non-Western lens. But I still think in many ways I'm on that journey of understanding other forms of medicine. But the overall idea that I think Cole wants you to take away from it is traditional Chinese medicine is often depicted as airy-fairy, as nonchalant or very non-specific compared to Western medicine, which is a lot more, for better or worse, a lot more scientific or a lot more practical, a lot more researchable or documentable. And that's something which Cole strongly disagrees with. So have a listen and come up with your own thoughts. I think the most important thing is to have an open mind. And I'm open to the idea of traditional Chinese medicine being completely fake or completely useful or probably somewhere in between. So enjoy. Alright, everyone, welcome to Safety Last. Today I have a friend with me, Cole. You are a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine, which makes you one of the, I guess, few people I know who actually dive into this field. So introduce yourself and let me know how you actually got into this field of medicine. Hey, my name's Cole. And I mean, it's been a really kind of interesting existential journey. I started out like a lot of people totally disillusioned with Western medicine. I was diagnosed with a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And being in the American healthcare system, you know, they're like, well, take some pain meds, you know, thanks for the exorbitant amount of money. And it's, you know, it was completely frustrating. And eventually, I mean, I've always been interested in Eastern philosophy and Buddhism, Hinduism and Taoism. And you know, I wanted to explore the healthcare systems that have been around for a very long time and a lot of people have a tremendous amount of faith in. And so I found my way to a school in the States where I studied for about a year, but it was a little too cerebral and too academic for me and not enough hands-on. And I ended up reading a book by my current teacher, Damo Mitchell. He wrote a book on internal alchemy from a Taoist perspective. And when I read it, it was like, whoever wrote this knows what they're talking about. They have what I'm looking for. And just around that time, he teaches a lot of different internal arts, be it internal martial arts or Nagong or meditation. But this was the first time he was ever teaching Chinese medicine. He was teaching a course in the UK. 
And I bought a plane ticket and left and sort of never really looked back. And that's kind of been my entrance into this world. You mentioned, uh, is, did you say Nigong? Is that Qigong or is that a different thing? So, you know, people use different terms in different ways, but essentially I would differentiate Neigong by, you know, Qigong a lot, a lot of times in the West is, you know, it's characterized by deep breathing and mindful movement and sort of these general notions of, of Qi. But Neigong is a really intense internal process. And I think what really separates it is its specificity. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There are specific causation chains you are enacting in the body. You are taking the body through a process of energetic efficiency. And so the Neigong process, so to speak, yeah, it's just this very specific and incredibly intense experience of awakening certain aspects of the energetic system, opening certain aspects of the system. I mean, again, I'm speaking in broad terms here, but it's a very specific, complex and nuanced process. So I would set it apart from Qigong in the sense that it's it's kind of like Qigong on rocket fuel with no ambiguity. <laughs> mm, that's that's a nice metaphor. I, I just want to touch on a few things that you said. Firstly, in 30 words or less, is the, uh, I'm not American, I've never actually been to the United States, but is the American healthcare system really that like bad and that expensive, as you were saying with the Advil example. And the other example, uh, the other question I wanted to ask was, how did your friends and family react when you made the switch towards traditional Chinese medicine? Did they see it from a perspective of like, this is foreign or this is strange, or were they very uh, supportive of that decision? Well, first, definitely the American healthcare system is dystopian. <laughs> it's really ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's almost cartoonish how bad it is. And, you know, thankfully I'm able to support myself enough to have gotten the healthcare I needed, but I see friends who have all sorts of conditions that can't get adequate treatment because they can't afford insurance. And I mean, it's a total nightmare. So that, I mean, it is as bad as it sounds for sure. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the reaction just from my general community, I mean, people had a myriad of opinions. Some people are more open to these things. Some people have more hardened dogmas about what medicine should look like and, you know, what their belief systems around health are. And so, you know, I'd say I had a, a bit of a mixed bag, but generally people were supportive. I mean, they've known I've always kind of been into Eastern philosophy and sort of the, the whole crux of my path has been investigating the validity of these traditions, you know, or lack thereof. I really wanted to get to the bottom of like, how do these things work? You know, I hear about meditation. I hear about Taoism and Buddhism and yogic traditions. And I really was interested in like, you know, are these things real? And if so, what are the mechanics behind them? And sort of that was the same philosophy and attitude I brought into uh, approaching Chinese medicine. Mm. And I I started just before this podcast, I was talking to you and I said something actually quite similar. Like I've always had an interest in traditional Chinese medicine and partly that's due to cultural exposure, just being from, uh, I guess, a Ch Chinese household. You just hear mm -hmm. things which get thrown out. And then at the same time, because of that Western influence, there was always a part of me which was thinking like, wait, is acupuncture actually legitimate? Like if I stick needles in my body, does that actually help <laughs> me? Does things like fire cupping, does that actually help? Because it seems so foreign and so different to the sure. medicine that I guess you would grow up and get used to in the West. But at the same time, you hear your parents like swear by it or there are a few examples of actually done acupuncture, acupuncture and it has helped to some degree. So there's always been this like tug and pull for me anyway, mm -hmm. where I'm interested in it. But at the same time, because 
it's not the main form of medicine propped up by society or by university i'm always i'm almost like wait is this legitimate is it not legitimate so yeah that's actually why sure. I, I as soon as i you know we started talking i wanted you to jump in jump in yeah, well, I think a lot of people have that struggle, right? Because, you know, the modern academic intellectual consensus doesn't have a lot of room for anything outside of its paradigm. So, you know, if something can't be explained in terms of sort of a Western reductionist attitude, then it's written off as charlatanism. But for me, proof is in the pudding and experience is the validator. I mean, believing in something doesn't make it real. Disbelieving in something doesn't make it not real. Things are the way they are. And so for me, you know, personal experience was always the litmus test that I used to, you know, verify whether or not something was relevant and real to my world. And getting into Chinese medicine, you know, initially, you know, I spent a year at a school in the States and it was still sort of that question mark for me. But it was really meeting my teacher demo where it was like undeniable. I mean, my experiences were paradigm shattering in terms of what I was experiencing in my own body, the healing I was going through. And, you know, again, for me, it's, you know, I never want to just subscribe to a paradigm, but any experience I have is sort of more data on any subject that I'm getting into or researching. So, you know, I, I think that natural, you know, push and pull of trying to determine if something's real or not is, is quite natural because we live in a culture that, you know, just globally in this modern culture that doesn't have a lot of room for anything outside of the, the modern academic worldview. Mm. Yeah, that, that is true. Medicine in many ways, and I say this as someone who hasn't really studied medicine or hasn't dived into traditional Chinese medicine or any other form of medicine, but it, it really does seem dominated by pharmaceuticals and studies. And I mean, that's not necessarily bad, but sure. as you said, it does seem like anytime you have a really ingrained mindset, you only see the world through a certain perspective totally. and that might limit your understanding of like different cultures or different perspectives, etc. Um, totally. Something I, I wanted to start off with, because when I knew that you were jumping on, that you were down to do this podcast, I thought, you know, I actually must, I might do some research because like, I don't want you to just be like talking to someone who has no <laughs> understanding. So just from all the videos I was watching and some articles I was reading, it really seemed that they emphasize this notion of holistic in traditional Chinese medicine. That mm -hmm. seems to be a pretty fundamental linchpin and a pretty fundamental idea. And in many ways seems to be something which the Western medicine doesn't emphasize as much. So firstly, do you agree with that? And can you provide some examples? What, what do you think about the differences? And is the word holistic essential to Chinese traditional medicine? I wholeheartedly agree. Well, the first distinction I would make is really between the term traditional Chinese medicine and what's often called classical Chinese medicine. So traditional Chinese medicine is what was sort of exported to the West. It was sort of synthesized by the Chinese government and has strengths and weaknesses. But one of the things that it really sanitized out is the more older esoteric aspects of the medicine, some of the more the older spiritual uh, beliefs and practices that were really integral to Chinese medicine. And so people have begun to differentiate them by describing classical Chinese medicine based on the classical texts, you know, like the Yellow Emperor's classic of medicine and sort of these, these more ancient systems that absolutely viewed the human being in a holistic manner. I mean, so much so that the human being is inexorably linked to the wider environment. I mean, a, a person is not even seen as separate from, <laughs> on an ultimate sense, the rest of reality but certainly the rest of nature, the rest of these cosmological rhythms, 
And absolutely, the link between mind and body is so fundamental to Chinese medicine. I mean, it's very much the starting point. And I think Western medicine is starting to catch up. I mean, you know, mind-body connection is now a buzzword in, you know, even just health circles. And of course, we have things like placebo, where somebody thinks they're, you know, they're taking a sugar pill, and they think they're taking a medicine that's, you know, curing a certain disease. And there are many cases where their mind, that simple belief of them being able to accept an idea that they're healing is physically healing the body in ways that can be tangibly shown and demonstrated. So the holistic view of the human being is absolutely fundamental to Chinese medicine. And I mean, it really starts there. It is the link between consciousness and the physical body. It is the link between the whole system of a human being and the environment that they live in. And Chinese medicine first begins to address those connections. So is a person in harmony with their broader environment? Are they living in the cycles of the seasons? Are they in tune with the broader environmental factors around them? And then, of course, how is the mind impacting the body and vice versa? I mean, in Chinese medicine, it's not just that the mind and body are connected, it's that they are one continuum. You could say that your body is your mind made manifest, that your body mm -hmm. is like a mind suit, so to speak, in Chinese medicine, and that, you know, somatically you store all sorts of emotional and psychological content in your body, which again is something I think Western medicine is catching up with. There's really interesting books called, you know, like The Body Keeps the Score and things where people are beginning to understand that the body somatically stores, you know, maybe consciousness is too big of a word for the Western paradigm uh, in a broader sense, but certainly emotional content and trauma and all sorts of things. So, I mean, yeah, the, the holistic view of a human being is absolutely fundamental to Chinese medicine, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you threw out a lot of things at me, but let, let's touch on the first point, which is what is the difference between traditional Chinese medicine and classical? Because you made these two distinctions. I guess what I'm trying to say is, was this change a political change by the Chinese government to make it more accessible to Western nations? And secondly, what's an example of something which was scrubbed out? You said something about esoteric. So what was something which was left in the classical but removed from traditional? Sure. Well, I think, yes, absolutely. It was a political uh, move, but also, I mean, Chinese medicine is vast and nuanced, and you have systems of Chinese medicine from far northern China, and you have systems of Chinese medicine from southern China, and you have certain contradictions. And so, I think TCM or traditional Chinese medicine um, was a way to sort of synthesize them so that it could be exported to the West. And I think this has strengths and weaknesses. I mean, the strengths are you have this incredibly complex system that you can sort of package and again export and people can sort of learn the general ins and outs of it in a shorter amount of time but in terms of classical medicine i mean the fundamental thing that i think uh, was scrubbed out which is kind of silly to me because i think the entire medicine ba is based on it is chi <laughs> chinese medicine is a it is a medicine that uses chi to treat the body how can it scrub that out I, I actually that's confusing i thought as you said that was the entire premise of the medicine i agree I wholeheartedly agree. Well, it becomes it, it becomes reduced down into this sort of like half Western biomedicine, like the 
the notion of chi is pay, paid homage to, but I think the real the reality of like interfacing with chi. How do you cultivate chi in your body? How do you cultivate chi in a needle? How do you pass that into a patient? All of those mechanics, as far as I can understand, have been completely lost because, again, I just see looking at the Chinese medicine scene in the West, it's like people pay homage to these classical notions of shen, of spirit, of chi, of jing, of all these sort of vibrational constitutional factors in a human being but again it's like they're given a nod rather than explained or even treated with validity so tcm a lot of times in the west has become this weird hybrid of like using acupuncture needles but without the sort of engine and technique that made them work sort of combined with with western biomedicine so it's not that it's a negative thing and it's not that it doesn't help people but again i mean chi and shen and jing and all of these sort of vibrational blueprints <laughs> that sit behind physical phenomena i mean this was the crux of what chinese medicine was the idea was that reality is vibration i mean your base level physicist who doesn't believe in any nonsense who you know is a total reductionist sort of richard dawkins kind of person <laughs> will admit that you know reality physical reality is is made up of vibratory states i mean that's just that's a fundamental fundamentally accepted thing in even the most reductionist scientific circles and certainly chinese medicine understood this completely and so rather than just treating the physical structure of a human being chinese medicine was completely focused on treating the vibrational blueprints or the vibrational patterning that sat behind and informed physicality itself and this is very much where a starting point at least to talk about qi which is an incredibly complex subject mm -hmm. and talking about incredibly complex subjects for uh, people in the west or who grew up in european nations just three words you throw out which is pretty fundamental uh, and uh, i guess it's fundamental because even i as someone who hasn't studied traditional chinese medicine like i've heard these words thrown around and it's actually quite frequently used in the language um, even in like greetings and or chinese mm -hmm. new year and stuff like that but you mentioned jing uh, shen and qi could mm -hmm. you explain uh, very quickly what these if you can actually do it really quickly but what sure. these concepts mean for someone who hasn't hasn't uh, had exposure to them Sure. So yeah, to make it as succinct as I possibly could, again, if we are under the premise that there are these certain vibrational patternings that sit behind our physical health that inform them, Jing is the most, uh, it's the densest. It's such a dense vibratory substance, so to speak, that if it was any more dense, it would be literally physical. And it is in bone marrow, it's in menstrual blood, it's in, it is like it's life essence itself. So if you were a candle, it would be the wick that is burning. So as far as I understand it, the, the character, the classical Chinese character for Jing denotes rice that is about to be cooked. So it is the substance that can be used for the body. It is sort of the, the base vitality uh, in a human being. And it, it contains our ancestral DNA coding. I mean, it, it is life essence itself, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So then, does, that, does, does that mean it's blood and it's... So you said something physical. So you said bone marrow and blood. Does that like 
include muscles? Is is that part of Jing? Or? I know I, it gets a bit more complex than that. I mean, uh, and when I say, when I talk about something specifically like menstrual blood in women or bone marrow, I'm saying it's like the vibrational patterning that sits just behind those substances and nourishes them. So I'm not saying Jing is literally bone marrow, but yeah. the, the vibrational patterning of Jing affects, nourishes, and has a huge impact upon bone marrow. So let's say if you were a candle, Jing would be the wick. It is, it is the thing that is burnt. It is the oil in the lamp, so to speak. It is the vibrational coding that sort of dictates your health and vitality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we took that further, then chi would be the flame. If you were the candle, chi, uh, the character for chi denotes rice being cooked. So chi can mean very, so many different things in so many different contexts. But specifically in Chinese medicine and in Neigong, which are quite linked, qi means uh, a couple things. One, it means the bioelectric activity of the body. So even Western medicine obviously uh, subscribes to the fact that the heart is an electrical organ, that the cells produce electricity, that the nervous system uses electricity to communicate with the rest of the body, so on and so forth. So qi is essentially divided into yin qi and yang qi. Yang qi being the bioelectric sort of catalyzing spark and life and vitality within the body. And yin qi is sort of the substantive fluid cooling form in the body. It is the the magnetism that holds it all in place, so to speak. And so these two aspects of the body are sort of built upon the the foundation of jing. So you have the wick and then you have the flame burning of which the flame would be the the bioelectrical activity in the body and the sort of magnetism that holds it all in place uh, that allows the body to have the structure it needs, essentially. Mm. Okay. Well, okay. That was very, very complicated. And, and I'll try to uh, step that down more. Yeah. And I mean, hey, at the same time, like, I, I guess that makes sense because you explained to a complete novice like me. There's a, Okay. There's a few things I, I want to ask about TMC, so or TCM, I should say, traditional Chinese medicine, or do you prefer calling it classical Chinese medicine? I'm cool either way. I mean, I, we're having set a, sort of an open-ended discussion, so the distinction, you know, isn't as important to me. So mm-hmm. yeah, either way. Okay. First question is, can you give me some examples, of whether it's from your life or your friend's life or whatever, some cases where Chinese medicine actually helped, where other forms of medication were not as effective. And something else I actually brought up previously, I, for some reason, I'm not sure if it's because of the food I eat or the weather environment or my just my body, produces a lot of phlegm. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why this happens. And it seems like my other family, my extended family doesn't really have this. So first question, what are some cases in your life, other people's life where traditional Chinese medicine has been helpful? And secondly, can you give me a potential solution or cure to this thing which has been affecting me? Sure. Well, first, in my own life, I think the most drastic thing for me is, again, I, I stated in the beginning, I was diagnosed with a connective tissue disorder, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is primarily, from a Western perspective, a issue of collagen production in the tissues. And in 2018, I had a quite fateful slip on some water. I was dancing into a room in which a friend had spilled water, and I slipped and I tore my labrum in my hip. And yeah, it was a pretty bad injury. And, you know, I had MRIs and I went through this whole process and was really trying to sort of explore, you know, what is the best way to go about this? 
And I was set to, it was either Chinese medicine or a Nagong course in the UK I was set to go to. And uh, my teacher, Damo, told me, hey, come to Portugal and I'll treat you. I'm like, okay. And I mean, I, I can barely bear weight on my leg. And so, you know, I'm in like... Wait, so so does that mean you can't walk? Does that mean you can't run? Like, what does that mean exactly? It you means I was having a really hard time walking. It means that when I was in line to get on an airplane, I was sitting down so I wouldn't have to stand. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I certainly couldn't run. I certainly couldn't walk up any incline. I mean, I, I was slow walking on flat ground and with a lot of pain and i was having a very hard time bearing weight on on the leg that i had uh, torn my labrum in and how and, quickly after the injury did you fly to portugal to meet this teacher well i've been studying with him for a while but that's a that's a good question uh, probably a couple months i had been like really struggling for, like two months maybe i had been really struggling with this and again just contemplating what my next move forward was and then it, I think, yeah, about two months later, I was set to be in the UK for a Nagong course. It was either a Nagong or Chinese medicine course. And he said, hey, come to Portugal, I'll treat you. And I said, okay, great. And getting to his house was brutal. <laughs> I mean, you know, again, just like trying to stand in lines and, you know, reclining in weird ways in my seat on the airplane. I mean, it was really a incredibly painful experience. And I show up at his house. And, you know, I've received a lot of acupuncture treatments and we, you know, we talk for a little bit and I get on his acupuncture table, he puts the needles in. And one of the profound things to me is I hear this notion of like, if you're really amazing at needling, you, the patient should not be able to feel the needles because you have to sort of bypass. It's like Ocean's Eleven. You're hacking into the system. You're changing the computer code. So if you create a really physical sensation It sends the message to the body that you're going to be doing really dense sort of musculoskeletal work. But if you're really going to tap into the the coding of the energetic system, so to speak, you have to slip past those trip wires. So your needling has to be perfect and your patient can't feel the needles go in. And I was surprised at how quickly his needling was. And I was surprised at that I did not feel the needles go in at all. Can I just just jump in there for a second? When when you mean hack the... The mm-hmm. body system, and I know you're using that metaphor for a novice like me. But what exactly does that entail? How does one actually hack it? Uh, sure. Like, does that mean your fingers have to be very precise? Like, do you have to warm it up, warm the needle up? Like, how do you do that exactly? Sure. Well, I think again, the big thing is to understand this entire paradigm is based upon chi. So the idea is that obviously you have a physical body. But there's a more subtle physiology, energetic physiology, so to speak, that sits behind the physicality. So I don't know if you've ever seen like what a nervous system looks like, like separated from the rest of a human body. Um, but, is it like, you know, I'm not in the scientific field or, or I really don't know that much about science, but is it basically sure. like like nerve endings and it appears like a human body just without the flesh it's just like little little rivers little lines yeah it's kind of like a weird squid so to speak right that's kind of how my teacher describes it in, in looking at pictures of it that's how i i see it like it's like a weird squid attached to the brain stem there's all these like weird tendrils that are coming out from from the brain itself and the energetic system is very much like that, but in energetic form. So if you could imagine the, these sort of subtle tendrils of, I mean, of chi, of information that, again, is like the somatic connection between the mind and body running through 
the physical system. I mean, that's what the meridian system is. I think people have sort of vague notions that there are these lines of chi that are the meridian system. But it, yeah, it's a, it's the very specific link in between consciousness and and physicality, and they they are these very distinct and specific lines of vibrational information that are linked to the organs, that are linked to the psychological and spiritual health of a person. I mean, they're very, very complex and very precise. And again, it's it's not a vague thing. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like, you know, the lung meridian starts at a certain point on somebody and ends at a certain point on somebody. And you have to be very, very in tune with with chi and with the human body to be able to interface with that. And so your question was, you know, how does one hack into the system? Well, this is where Negong comes in. I mean, Negong translates into internal skill, skill with the internal substances of Jing, Qi, and Shen, so to speak. And so, uh, and we were taught in our uh, program, studying with uh, my teacher, Demo, is we were taught a practice of how to magnetize the needle with yin qi, because again, yang qi is uh, bioelectric activity, and yin qi is the magnetism that holds it in place. So we were taught a practice that, you know, if we did, you know, hour and a half a day for every day for about six months, we could start to get the hang of it, of how to magnetize a needle with yin qi so that when you get close to this very specific tiny point on this tiny vibrational line of information in the body, that the needle, I mean, you can feel it. It's like the needle almost slips out of your fingers, like it's drawn towards that specific point. And that's really sort of the starting point of quote unquote hacking into the system. Like, you know, if you have this tiny line of vibrational information, let alone a singular point on it, how are you ever going to find it, <laughs> let alone needle it, let alone interface with it? And this is, again, where I think some of the older esoteric aspects of the medicine were, were washed out. I mean, how to do these things precisely, I mean, were the crux of Chinese medicine and the engine of Chinese medicine. And so you can have all the theory about Chinese medicine you want, but if you don't know how to magnetize a needle or interface with the, this sort of vibrational aspect of the human body directly – I think a huge chunk of the engine that makes the medicine effective is missing. And can I ask, in China, because you spoke about how traditional Chinese medicine in many ways was an export by the government in order to make it more accessible to foreign nations. In China, are these teachings around or is this esoteric understanding of Chinese medicine still apparent and still available for people or was that also lost as the Chinese government tried to modernize traditional Chinese medicine? As far as I understand, it was incredibly and largely lost. And if somebody was really looking to find the esoteric skills that still remain in Chinese medicine or Taoism for that matter, Southeast Asia would be the place to look. I think after the Cultural Revolution, it all kind of, I mean, it all definitely had to go incredibly underground. And that Southeast Asia really became the place. And even then in nooks and crannies, like, I mean, the, the reality of, at least in terms of what the state of these arts seem to be now, is that things are a lot more hidden than people think. And, you know, even just hearing about the experience of my own teacher, I mean, you know, he spent decades going down dead ends, finding fake teachers, going to these remote places, finding somebody who could teach him eight out of these 10 qualities that he had to integrate into his body, but not all 10. So he had to unwire all these qualities and go find a teacher who could teach him all 10. I mean, so many dead ends and so much travel just to get to the methods, because it's like, you know, you can imagine that 
two chemicals will create a specific reaction, but if they don't, they won't. I mean, you need two chemicals to create a specific chemical reaction. And I think it is that way with these arts. Like these arts function in a very specific way. And these methods have been unbroken and handed down since antiquity. And so I think the the more esoteric aspects of how to make these things function are a lot more hidden than people think. And I feel quite lucky because, you know, I feel like I, <laughs> I have a teacher who did a lot of the legwork for me. I, you know, I was prepared to wander around northern India and Southeast Asia for a very long time to find this stuff. And I found a dude who already did it. <laughs> and so okay. I hang out with him and then put these, you know, principles into practice. And the last thing I will add, though, is, again, you don't have to take anybody's word for it. I mean, you ha- it's about experiencing it for yourself. And for me, like, you know, I, I have just as much skepticism as the next Westerner, I think. But for me, skepticism is a tool in my tool belt rather than the primary lens in which I see all of reality through. So like, I have my skepticism for sure, but I think people really have inflated skepticism to be the the first ideological barrier that anything must pass through. And people you know, are, are, can be quite close-minded to things that sound outside of the you know, outside of the norm. And so for me, again, it was, I was open to it. I was interested, but the proof really was in the pudding and was in the, the experiences I began to have in my, in my own body and mind. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go back to the, the, the proof in the pudding. So after your teacher did acupuncture, what was the result and how quickly <laughs> did it come? Instantly, I was able to get off the table and walk again. Like instantly, like that, instantly, that day. like, like not that day, like after the acupuncture session, I got off of the table and was able to walk. And how that's absurd. I but agree. How- I agree. I mean, it, it, it shattered my previous paradigms of what I thought was possible with this medicine. So I, I think it's absurd. I really do. So how long did the acupuncture session go for? And as you said, a good person, or like a good person, a skilled practitioner would be able to insert the needles without actually causing a physical reaction or actually even alerting you that there were needles in you. So you didn't feel that at all, I'm guessing. I didn't feel that at all. I felt what felt like an incredibly strong electric current surging through my body once the needles were in. But in, as far as the insertion of the needles, I did not feel them go in. I did have a very strong physiological experiences once they were in. But yeah, I mean, it was paradigm shattering to me. I got off the table and I was able to walk. I mean, (laughs) and it's not that I was 100% cured forever. And it's funny, I was kind of bullheaded. A year later, I'm doing like 12 mile hikes, you know, like being like, yeah, I was healed. Like it's, and I re exacerbated the injury and whatever. But that being said, I went from barely being able to bear any weight to after the single session, I get off the table and I'm walking. I was able to go to lunch. (laughs) It was amazing. I mean, it really blew my mind. That's. I actually don't even have words. That just sounds that just sounds unheard of, to be honest. It, cha- it um, changed my life forever. <laughs> I mean, really. And in terms of studying medicine with him, and especially Nagong as well. I mean, again, like the physiological experiences that have happened. I mean, any Nagong student, you could talk to anyone in the school. I mean, rapid. And my teacher always says, like, if you think you felt something, disc- discard it as being nonsense. Like. If you, every experience will be undeniable to you in these arts. And that has absolutely (laughs) been how it's gone. I mean, like if you think you may feel a little vibratory, something, just discount it as being your imagination because every single time there are clear milestones in these practices and you will know when they are occurring 
And that has definitely been the case in terms of my Nagon practice and, and definitely in the case of Chinese medicine as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, can, can we come back to the phlegm question I had? So sure, wh- sure. what does traditional Chinese medicine or classical Chinese medicine say about that? Am I, is there a problem with my liver? Is there a problem with my heart? <laughs> like, what's the issue and how does one cure this? So, I mean, first and foremost, it's important to understand that each person has their own constitutional experience. So for me to really understand the phlegm that is going on inside of your body, I would need to uh, go through certain diagnostic processes with you. So I would want to feel your pulse. I would want to look at your tongue. I would want to see what is physically presenting in your body. And, you know, we can get into why the tongue and pulse are diagnostic methods. But essentially, phlegm, I mean, first of all, it's a coagulation of fluids. So, you know, you were talking about how, you know, hearing your grandparents talk about heat and talking about cold. And thermal properties are absolutely vital to Chinese medicine. And it's amazing that, to me at least, that it's missed in the West because, like, whether or not there is heat in the body or cold in the body is fundamental to how the body works. And again, it's not just cold or heat. It's sort of the vibrational patterning of cold, the vibrational patterning of heat. So cold is anything that is vibrationally slowing down, constricting, and creating hypofunction in the body. Heat is anything that is speeding up the chi. It is creating rapidity. It is creating erratic movement. And so what will heat do in the body? It will begin to coagulate and sort of gunk up the fluids, so to speak. So often phlegm can be from uh, heat in the body because the fluids aren't processing how they are supposed to. So they begin to coagulate. They begin to gunk up. It's also important to understand there's sort of another fundamental ethos of Chinese medicine is something called the eight principles. So is something yin or yang? Is it hot or cold like we talked about? Is it excess or is it deficient? Meaning, is there something in the body that's there that shouldn't be? Or is there something in the body that there's not enough of? Are you deficient in certain nutritive aspects of the body? Or is there excess? So your phlegm could be a buildup of, you know, excess heat in the body that's coagulating the fluids. Or it could be from a deficiency. So again, all of these things really are dependent upon how you are presenting as a patient. So I wish I could just give a catch-all like phlegm is this or you know bronchitis is this, but it really is a case. I mean, there are, of course, these general patterns of disharmony in the body, but how you present physically through your pulse and through your tongue primarily will determine what phlegm is in your body. Okay, and, and is that a different approach to western medicine and once again i just want to say i haven't studied western medicine but is that a different approach in the sense that even if two people have phlegm you can't prescribe the same medication because they have two different reasons for the phlegm exactly so let's you know let's really take in western terms like like something like bronchitis two patients come in with bronchitis you may treat them entirely different because chinese medicine doesn't have I mean, it sounds crazy to say it doesn't have disease, so to speak, but what it has is general patterns of disharmony. So rather than, you know, this idea of, I mean, you know, again, like a diagnosis like bronchitis, Chinese medicine is always looking at what is the harmony or lack thereof of the certain substances in the body. And so rather than like, you know, bronchitis or your phlegm at the moment is simply a snapshot of what your body is presenting at this moment. But, you know, according to 
the depth of Chinese medicine, your body is this constantly transforming thing. I mean, moment to moment, all sort you know, cells are being born and dying. And, you know, even the grander philosophical thing of every moment, everything is changing. But this is really specifically diagnostically relevant to Chinese medicine, because your disease that you come in with is simply a snapshot in an ongoing process of transformation that your body's going through. And not that it's all transforming towards some healing sort of new age thing. It's just your body is always changing, always. And so, you know, any disease that you come in with and present with is simply a snapshot of where you are at any given moment. And in Chinese medicine, rather than being really stuck on these labels, we are looking at what is the health of the yang activity, mainly the bioelectric catalyzing aspects of the body, the yin activity, the, the magnetism that holds it in place, the substantive fluid aspects of the body, what is the health of the blood, what are the health of the other, other bodily fluids, what is the health of the shen, the consciousness, and what is you know the health of your jing. And we look at these things and how do they relate to the organs. Mm. So you know how, how do these substances relate to the spleen? How do they relate to the lungs? How do they relate to the liver? And, you know, and so instead of seeing like we have this disease, you know, you, you have, we have things like, you know, you call them syndromes, like spleen chi deficiency, which sounds weird or vague, but it simply means chi in this case is not some quantitative thing. Like there's not enough magical energy in the spleen. Spleen chi deficiency means the functional quality activities of the spleen aren't working well. So Why? It, is it because of their the you know aspects of the liver are being too forceful in the body and overriding the spleen's ability to help the stomach process digestion? I mean, it's all this you know correlative links that you know then begin to correlate with broader cosmological things like the seasons. I mean, again, the human body is inexorably linked to the environment. But in Chinese medicine, when we look at disease specifically, anything from phlegm, bronchitis, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, whatever. We are looking at what are the thermal properties of the body? How, are the, how is the body transforming and processing fluids? What is the health of the blood, the jing, the qi, the shen? And how are those impacting the organs? Mm -hmm. And so rather than putting any like, you know, labels on it, we look in real time at what is the general, I mean, you talk about, you know, holistic view of the body. This is what we're looking at. What is the entire ecosystem of the body doing? And this is why the body was seen as a microcosm from the broad, broader environment, because it is its own ecosystem. It is its own sort of holistic mechanism that is constantly transforming like the weather, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it just, just hearing you talk, it just feels like, and it might be understandable, but the Western language or the Western paradigm almost doesn't have the language and the vocabulary to really fit into fit in these notions. Like you were saying some stuff and it, it like, I've just never heard those words. I've never heard that language. I've never heard those phrases. And mm -hmm. Hey, maybe this is just because, you know, the Western uh, medicine paradigm evolved from a different base point, but yeah, mm -hmm. it, it really seems like to me anyway, that I think you were mentioning something like bioelectric or something like, <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not sure if the Western medicine has that, but Hey, I'm sure this, you know, sure. both ways, um, well, and I understand how a lot of these things can sound arcane, but I mean, even if we want to step it down, like, I mean, Western medicine acknowledges that the heart is an electrical organ. It acknowledges that the nervous system communicates to the rest of the body through electricity. It acknowledges that the cells produce electricity that the nervous system interacts with. I mean, that the brain is an electrical organ. So, uh, you know, I think the 
bioelectricity is acknowledged in, in Western medicine, at least in those physical terms. But certainly, the more esoteric aspects of what that may mean deeper down the rabbit hole, I agree. I think these things often sound quite arcane to people, and there isn't a lot of context to bridge the gap to talk about these things. But, you know, again, I, I see remnants of it, like, you know, the heart is an electrical organ that is bioelectric activity. Let's jump into my my history. So I've obviously had contact with Chinese medicine, and one thing mm-hmm. that I used to remember and I hated doing this, was drinking the, in Chinese, it's called leung cha, which translates to like, um, I actually don't know what it translates to, but like some sort of like liquid medicine. Do, is that is that part of, I guess, traditional Chinese medicine? Because I used to remember drinking these horrible tasting, <laughs> like disgusting medicine. And I think, honestly, I actually don't know if it was helpful or not, just because I was <laughs> so young when I did it. Sure, But sure. I remember that putting me off and almost in a way i was like well in in western medicine i just pop a pill i just eat sure. this like flavorless thing and then that's yeah, I don't it have to so, drink this nasty stuff yeah so so <laughs> I, I guess how how important is that those i'm not sure what to call it i'm not sure if soup is the right word, that medication and and yeah i just can you elaborate on that well, I will say my own specific training, I'm not an herbalist. So my, my main training has been in, again, Gong and acupuncture. I have friends who have really gone down the barrel of herbalism, and it is an app, you know, just as complex as, as any of the rest of the medicine, and I see it used to great efficacy, but that is not my area of expertise. However, when I have issues that I want to be resolved through herbalism, I hit up my friends to prescribe me herbal formulas. And yeah, they taste terrible. <laughs> they're not. They're not at all, you know, pleasant. But I, c- I can only speak to my experience of taking herbal formulas. So you know, I have a general. You know, all Chinese medicine students are hypochondriacs, and they all are diagnosing themselves. They're like, I have kidney yin deficiency, and my liver <laughs> blood is weak, and you know, we all. It's like so silly. And so the general issues that I have in the homeostasis of my own body, I ask my friends and, and teachers to prescribe me herbal formulas, and I've absolutely felt a, a systemic effect. But that came from taking them every day for, you know, weeks and months, depending on on the formula. So again, herbalism is certainly not my area of expertise. I can only speak as sort of being a patient of Chinese herbalism. And yes, I agree. It tastes super nasty, most of the (laughs) stuff. Taking it over time, I've definitely felt the issues, the systemic issues that I had problems with moving in the right direction. Okay, but herbalism would still be one category underneath the wider umbrella of Chinese medicine. For sure. Okay. And uh, the other question I want to ask, just because like I was, I'm honestly like godsmacked by your, your example of having acupuncture and then being able to walk despite my literally life. not life-changing. being able to do it like an hour beforehand. So can you give me other examples that you've seen or you've witnessed or that, that you've done when it comes to acupuncture or uh, Nagong, where you helped someone? Sure. Well, I mean, even just seeing people who have like, uh, you know, IBS, like digestive issues, and they go to all these specialists, and they just can't get a grip on it. And then you feel in their pulses, and you're like, yeah, of course, their earth element is out of balance. And that sounds totally arcane. But you see the the spleen's function in aiding the stomach and digestion is off. And so you bring balance to that and poof, Mm -hmm. like these issues go away and they see it as some degree of mysticism, but it's not, it's mechanics. I mean, the earth element was out of balance, you know, for whatever reason. And what exactly 
um, does the earth element or the fire element. So you said earth element, and then you said, did you say spleen? What was, was that? The... I did. I did. I said yeah. st- stomach and spleen. So essentially, the organs in the body are correlated with different elements. And again, maybe the elements sound a bit arcane, but you can really see the elements as a shorthand for describing different vibrational processes in reality. So like, you know, the earth element is any chi, quote unquote, in the universe that is harmonized towards a central point. The water element is any chi that descends in pools. The wood element is any chi that ascends and grows in the body. And you see how they are expressed in the body. So for instance, the wood element in the body are related to the liver and gallbladder, but a, a very clear correlation is like, what's called the tendons and sinews. So, you know, your connective tissue, the sort of woody growth aspects of the body are very much related to the quote-unquote wood element in the body. And so the way in which these elements correlate with each other, I mean, again, it's shorthand for these vibrational processes that, again, play out over the seasons. In a really wide level, they play out on cosmological levels with the planet. I mean, that's you know, you can get as out there as you want with it. But essentially, the idea is each of the el- of each of the organs has an associated element. And so, for instance, the spleen and stomach are the earth element organs. And the earth element is all about digestion. It's about mulling things over, breaking things down. It's related to the aspect of consciousness in Taoism called the yi, which is like sort of your cognitive focus or ability so sort of the joke in chinese medicine is like you're either digesting your food or your thoughts so people who are like really over ruminating and and over intellectualizing and sort of straining their yi or that aspect of their mind often tend to have digestive issues that they never would correlate otherwise Mm -hmm. and so you know the quote-unquote earth element is yeah it's related to the spleen and the stomach's ability to digest to break down to derive nourishment from food essentially into the body to extract chi if you want to put it in these terms from food so that it can be used in in the body in very specific ways and and can you tell all this just by putting because i've actually had someone a chinese practitioner actually do that they put their hands on my pulse but can you tell all this whether they're uh, deficient in earth element or water element just from the pulse 100%. And so when I started with the pulses, you know, it was like, yeah, I can feel blood pumping, like, yeah, okay. And I mean, it took so much time of just feeling pulses. And I'm in here and I'm like, dude, like, what is yeah, okay, I feel a pulse. And then, (laughs) then my teacher felt my pulses and said, he goes, huh, wouldn't have thought that based on your demeanor. I'm like, that's a really enigmatic thing to say, man, like what? And you know, he starts to describe all of this very accurate stuff about my health. And, you know, and it's like, okay, there's something here. And even just having other people feel my pulse, like they were able to tell really accurate things about what was going on in my body. And it wasn't until practicing uh, feel, I mean, you, you have to feel so many pulses and you have to just spend so much time tuning in. And the way it's described to me is like, okay, there's the pulse, ba bump, ba bump, ba bump, there's the blood. But there's like this little echo that comes off of the blood, like this tiny little echo that you have to like chase for months. You're chasing this thing. And that echo is like the chi. It's like the the information that's contained deeper. And so you're feeling a pulse. You're feeling so many pulses for so long until eventually you you hear that little echo. You feel it. You're like, there's something else here. There's a little buzzy thing that apparently they say holds more information so you're like chasing that and hunting it until for me it was years down the line all of a sudden it's like whoa dude like there 
is diagnostic information here. And now, I mean, I am no, I'm again, still bare beginnings in terms of pulse diagnosis compared to my teachers and my friends and my peers. But like I can feel into the pulse and yeah, I can generally feel what's going on with, because there's different positions on the pulse that correspond to different organs and elements. So I can feel in and generally feel like what's going on in the lungs and the large intestine, which are the metal element organs, or, you know, the, the heart and small intestine, which are the fire element organs, so on and so forth. And it's amazing because you can feel it. You're like, whoa, dude, like the liver pulse is really tight and constrained. And you're like, hey, do you have a lot of frustration? And they're like, yes. And you're like, yeah, I thought so. Like it's mm-hmm. written all over your pulse. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm still a beginner when it comes to pulse diagnosis, but the amount of diagnostic information that you can pick up from the pulse, I wouldn't have believed it had I not seen it you know, diagnosed in me from other practitioners, stuff that I, you know, I wouldn't not even tell people. And they're like, this is what's going on with you. And it's like, well, that hit the nail on the head. And then years after getting into pulse diagnosis, you know, it's like this subtle little world that you're chasing that slowly begins to open up to you. And it takes a tremendous amount of, I mean, okay, mindfulness is a buzzword, but the Taoist word is ting. So ting is to absorb your mind into a process. So like, you know, you're absorbing into an object of meditation, so to speak. And you have to learn to ting into somebody's pulse. So you have to, you know, like absorb the quote unquote fluid of your mind, so to speak. You soak your mind into the process of feeling somebody's pulse. And when you get really good at that degree of mindfulness, a lot of diagnostic information opens up to you. Mm-hmm. And when you say ting, like, is that the Chinese word for listen? Is that the word? Yes, you're it is. To? It is the Chinese word for listen. And, and mm-hmm. it's deliberately used listen rather than to look. Because again, like in the in the internal arts, especially in Neigong, I think a big misnomer in the West is like, you know, people think visualization is uh, involved. And I, you know, I can't speak for other traditions, but in the participation that I've had in Neigong from Northern Taoism, as taught to me by my teacher, visualization has nothing to do with it. You are enacting these somatic processes in the body. You are not imagining them. You are not visualizing them. You know, visualizing weights is not going to make you strong. Visualizing eating a meal is not going to make you full. Like you are doing these very real specific processes in the body. And so the why the word ting is used is because it is as if you are listening in, you are tuning in with mindfulness, you are absorbing into a process as if you are listening intently to it. Mm-hmm. And let's just take the earth element, the spleen that you've mentioned a few times. How, for example, would someone increase, you said if they were deficient, increase the earth mm-hmm. element? I'm not sure if I'm using the sure, vocabulary sure. correctly. Or how would they decrease it? Like what, what, is, what is something that one can do to increase or decrease it? I mean, these are great questions, I think, and and it is in line with Chinese medicine because we are looking at is something excess in the body or is it deficient? So in feeling the pulse, this is part of the training we do is to see, okay, are, you know, the earth element pulses, the spleen and stomach, are they excess or are they deficient? And largely as a practitioner, you know, we do this through acupuncture. So again, it's like hacking into the computer system. Like if the the earth element is excess, so to speak, we tune it down. We tone it down through needles, like you're tuning a system. We are changing the program a little bit through the skill of 
you know, putting the vibration into the needles, tuning into the system. And we are either bringing down what is too much or raising up or nourishing what is deficient. So primarily, you know, that's how we do it through acupuncture. Because again, like these different acupuncture points in the body, I mean, you have the earth element meridians that correspond to the organs. And so each acupuncture point is almost this, this tiny little holographic piece of information that you can, you know, stick a needle in to change the code and change the wiring. And so, you know, if like the a deficient earth element in somebody is a zero zero one one zero zero one, you are putting the needle in to make it one one zero zero. I mean, you're you're changing the vibrational code of the system mainly through mm-hmm. acupuncture. Now, of and, course, and- you can do this through herbs as well, and you know, other other modalities. Mm-hmm. And where, where, let's just take the earth element. Like, where would you stick the needle? Uh, maybe, yeah, like maybe it's hard to describe because, like, the human body sure. is so large. But if we were to just take the earth element, where would you stick the needle? And then would you like twist? Would you? I'm pretty sure I've had uh, a person who uh, I'm not really sure why they did this because it's been so long. They stuck the needle sure. in me, and then I'm pretty sure they f- they f- twisted it or they flicked it a little so it vibrated sure. a little. So, sure. yeah, how would you do it? These are great questions. So, okay, so the, you know, the spleen and and stomach channels, essentially, they come up from the feet, from the toes, up through the legs, up through the body. So there are so many different approaches of why you would needle a specific point. But your emphasis on needle technique is actually very important because people are taught in Chinese medicine school, yeah, to tonify or to strengthen a point, so to speak, you would turn clockwise to reduce a point or make it you know less you would turn it counterclockwise but why that why superstition well most people aren't taught why and the reason is chinese medicine very much in my opinion and this is of course just because of my training it is applied nagong so the reason why turning a point counterclockwise will tonify or strengthen a point and why turning it counterclockwise will reduce a point is based upon the opening of an energetic point in the center of the palm called laogong and Laogong is essentially a magnetic <laughs> center in the center of the palm that is used very much in projection of chi and working with building magnetic fields in your own body. I mean, again, I can understand how this can sound out there and arcane to certain people, but that, that was the reason. Because the center of the palm has magnetic activity in it, because we are meant to charge the needle, so to speak, with magnetism, turning it clockwise does a very specific thing with the center of our palm in the way that we can tune up a channel or tune it down. And and that's like a, I think a very specific example of what's lost in TCM. People don't, they just say, turn it clockwise to do this, turn it counterclockwise to do this, but they're never told why and never told how, I think, you know, to actually make these principles work rather than just doing these mechanical things because the textbook says so. Mm -hmm. And the example you said, and once again, just because I'm not familiar with these arts, you said something about the, the middle of your palm projecting a magnetic field. <laughs> my first yeah. thought was Dragon Ball Z Goku's. Totally. Yeah, that was my first thought. So totally, can, you, totally. can you explain what, what, what it means? Like, yeah. what, is, what does it mean? Well, it's funny because I, I mean, like, my excitement in these arts is like, yeah, like it's like living this real Dragon Ball Z trip. And it's so funny because my teacher's so not into it. And he's like, oh, please, like stop equating this with Star Wars and Dragon Ball Z. And we're like, Dude, but it is like that, though. Like it totally is. Like, don't yeah. you see? Like we're living out our dream. And he's like, please, just it's so annoying. It's, I mean, essentially, you know, again, if we're taking the premise that all of reality is vibration mm-hmm. and that the thus the human body conducts 
different vibratory states and that consciousness itself is vibration, then the interaction between consciousness and the human body can produce interesting results. And again, in Neigong, we have yin qi and we have yang qi. Yang qi being bioelectricity and yin qi being the magnetic fields that hold it in place. Those, those are the two main substances we work with in Neigong. And so Lao Gong, or this point in the center of the palm, there's a way to open and activate the point. And I mean, even like, you know, if people do a really simple exercise, like kind of like stretch open your palms from like the very center of your palm and just kind of push them together really slowly and move them apart. Like if you do that for like 10 minutes, you'll start to feel some weird stuff happening. I mean, this is a really simple thing that like a lot of people do, even in basic Qigong circles. And it's funny because down the line, it doesn't really have much efficacy in the arts, but it's a funny little trick that where like, again, you can just kind of feel this weird magnetic pull for yourself. And it's a bit of a party trick, but the the real opening of this point, Lao Gong in the center of the, I mean, I agree with you. It's kind of Dragon Ball Z-esque. I mean, you are learning to magnify, to to manipulate magnetic fields and bioelectricity and again like i i'm aware of how far-fetched that sounds to a western audience and i and i get it and if i hadn't i think experienced these kind of things so much on such a repeated basis too because any good scientific experiment should be repeatable it's the repetition and the consistency with which i've experienced these things in my own body and the bodies of others that it's like yeah, seems to be <laughs> how it works. Like mm-hmm. you open Laogong and there the magnetic field is. And especially, you know, okay, you hear these buzzwords like the Dantian and things like this. I mean, that is not a vague concept. When the lower Dantian, when the magnetic field of the lower Dantian is formed, partly through a relationship to the magnetic field in the center of the palm, I mean, it will knock you on your ass. I mean, it is it is unequivocal. It is not subtle. It is not, I think I felt something. It is, I am now living in a new reality because there's this thing inside my lower abdomen. And that's like hard to cope with even for some people. And for me, it was a huge paradigm shift. So like, I agree with you. It's total Dragon Ball Z stuff. (laughs) And like, and for me, that's the great excitement of it is like the scientific skeptic and inquirer in me wanted to see if this stuff is real or not. And so far, it turns out <laughs> it's really real to the point where sometimes I'm like, I wish I could dial this back a bit. Like, what have I gotten myself into? Okay, so before I've actually got a, a whole string of questions, but before I jump into it, can you give me just one super concrete example? Like, for example, for example, the thing you said about not being able to walk and then your 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 teacher, yeah, your teacher mm-hmm. inserts the acupuncture needles and then basically... 30 minutes later, you can walk. Can you give me an example of traditional Chinese medicine with acupuncture where it has produced another result which was so eye-opening? <laughs> Here's what I would first say. I think, and again, everyone's going to think their teacher's the man. I have not really met other practitioners that are on that skill level. I've met mm-hmm. one other person who is amazing at Chinese medicine, but I think that degree of skill level is incredibly uncommon because it requires a couple things. It requires access to the methods, which again, I think scattered out of China after the cultural revolution into the far corners of Southeast Asia. So it requires somebody to have made contact with those methods, to have implemented those methods daily for, you know, four to six hours a day for decades. I mean, we talk about like chi emission, like really emitting chi. 
I mean, it, you know, the technique, as far as I understand, is called Wei Chi Alpha. And beyond the basic magnetic field stuff, like really emitting Chi into a person, that's 10 to 15 years of hours and hours of Nagong practice a day to make that stuff even begin to work. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is way above my pay grade here, but I've seen it in, in again, in my own teacher and in, in my peers. And so I think the thing is like, I know Chinese medicine has changed people's lives dramatically, but I had a lot of experience with Chinese medicine where it all seemed very bunk and not real to me until I met somebody who had the juice, so to speak. And I know that, of course, there are other practitioners who have that. I just think they're less common than the, than the Western world might understand or, or have context for. Because again, I think the Cultural Revolution did an extraordinary number on these arts to decimate them to a pretty amazing degree. Okay, um, actually talking about the Cultural Revolution, because I am also a history teacher and I've always had an interest in you know Asia and in China, the Cultural Revolution was basically the government trying to destroy classical Chinese architecture or arts or literature or knowledge. Was traditional Chinese medicine or classical Chinese medicine specifically targeted? Like, like is that part of... Because I, I know statues and architecture was specifically destroyed and even like relationships between like, you know, the teacher being seen as the head of the classroom or something like that, that was like challenged. Mm -hmm. Was medicine also part of the uh, curriculum which was destroyed? Yes and no. So no in the sense that it was synthesized into, again, TCM, quote unquote, traditional Chinese medicine. So mm -hmm. it was made into uh, something that could be exported to the West. But yeah, anything to do with esotericism, certainly Taoist practice, Buddhist practice. I mean, these esoteric arts were absolutely persecuted. Monasteries were burnt to the ground. I mean, many high-level practitioners of Qigong and Negong had to flee China because of this persecution. So yeah, any of the, again, I mean, I, I guess I'm biased because my uh, Chinese medicine training has been so connected to Negong, but what... I understand the engine of these arts to be, which is, again, skill with chi. Anything that was, you know, it's like religion is the opiate of the people, right? Like anything mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. deemed to to be a part of that old superstition was violently persecuted. And thus, a lot of the masters of these arts, again, had to uh, flee to specifically, as far as I understand, to Southeast Asia, where these arts have mainly survived there. Mm -hmm. And Vietnam in particular, or like what's the Southeast Asian... Southeast Asian so, nation, you were thinking. I'm not as familiar with the specifics. And again, there's a lot of like, well, there's a lot of secrecy around these arts. I mean, I know that Northern Thailand still has a lot of juice, so to speak, in terms of these arts. I know that Indonesia still has a lot of juice in terms of real practitioners. You know, I, those are the two places I would, I would maybe mention. But again, I'm not the authority on it. That would be, that would be a conversation with my teacher and his sort of colleagues. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, I've got some other follow-up questions just on this on this topic. So what are some advantages you think traditional Chinese medicine offers, which Western medication, Western medicine doesn't, and vice versa? Is there something which Western medicine has, which traditional Chinese medicine doesn't? And something that comes to my head is surgery. Now, sure, this sure. might be the counter argument might be that people use surgery too often or it's almost like a, oh i've got a problem surgery without treating the uh things beforehand but to me from what i know surgery was never been a part of the chinese tradition chinese uh medicine tradition so is that an advantage the west has over and what are some other advantages and disadvantages the west has 
These are great questions. So yeah, I mean, obviously, it's starting on the, the advantage of Chinese medicine, just because of my own experience and biases, I think the huge advantage is looking after systemic health. I mean, I think that's a way that Western medicine has very much failed in terms of looking at the systemic health of, of a human being. I mean, you know, you go into a hospital and they're serving like, you know, sodas and jello and all. I mean, again, it's like there's such a disconnect between the general landscape of one's health. And, you know, there's sort of these old axioms about, you know, a good Chinese medical doctor, you shouldn't have to go see them too often because they're keeping you healthy and you're, you're living in a, in a healthy manner. And so I think the big strength of Chinese medicine is, first of all, understanding these correlative links that Western medicine would miss about health, like thermal properties in the body, like how the mind and body are connected, like how the general health of the organs can manifest diagnostically in ways that, you know, Western medicine would miss, you know, because I can feel in somebody's pulse. And again, I'm not a good pulse guy. Like I've got a lot, a long, long way to go to even consider myself remotely having the basics of, of pulses. But like I have had the experience of feeling into somebody's pulse and being like, whoa, dude, like there's a lot of excess going on in their liver. And like, if that's not cleared up, there are going to be physical imbalances. So the general systemic health, I think, is the tremendous strength of Chinese medicine. And now I agree with you in Western medicine. Like, if you get your foot bitten off by a shark, you're not going to go to an acupuncturist to save your life. <laughs> like, you know, there's <laughs> the absolutely. And I do think the structural aspects of and surgery in specific, you know, that is an unbelievable advancement. I mean, how advanced surgery has become is incredible. And I think so big structural things like like surgery, I think are an unbelievable advancement. I think again these big sort of life-saving operations and and things in huge drastic crisis moments. I think western medicine definitely has an unbelievable amount to offer. I mean, of course. I just think in terms of long-term holistic systemic health of the human body, it it doesn't look at the whole of a human being in that way and thus, you know, fails to understand how to bring homeostasis to, to the body. But yeah, dude, I mean, surgery is amazing, of course. And, you know, Western medicine, it absolutely has its role. You know, I'll never be one of those people that just like demonizes Western medicine. You can't, I mean, the advancements in Western medicine have, have changed the modern world. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, a boom to humanity in many ways. I just think, it does not hold all the answers when it comes to the human health, especially looking at the human as a mind and body. And, you know, if we want to even touch on aspects of spirit, like, you know, the human is a lot more than just a frozen shoulder. Mm -hmm. And let me know if this analogy makes sense or if it's actually even applicable to Chinese medicine. But it seems like if you look at the quote, prevention is better than cure it seems like mm -hmm. chinese medicine and please let me know if i'm if you know if maybe i'm reading reading it wrong but it seems like chinese medicine is better at prevention and systematic health whilst surgery if we take that as an example or representative of western medicine is better at you have a problem and it's really serious you have to end it today you have to counter it today that's how you do it yeah i think so in terms of very very acute crisis absolutely now if 
you are getting very ill, but it's not like you're on the verge of having a dangerous, you know, like tomorrow you could die from this. I think Chinese medicine can turn around very real and deep diseases in the body. I mean, a tremendous amount of disharmony and imbalance in the body can be, I mean, I've seen, you know, things that would be controversial to talk about be healed through Chinese medicine and, you know, through herbalism and, and acupuncture. And can you give an again, example of what, of what that is? Like, are you, are you able to say what that? Yeah, sure. Means? I mean, specifically, when I was in the States, I mean, I saw cancerous tumors shrink in patients through herbs and acupuncture. I was, you know, I was doing, I was mixing and putting together herbal formulas according to what the practitioner was telling me to, because again, I'm not an herbalist, but I was spending time in the clinic and I was also a patient of, of that clinic in the States and patients who, you know, had cancer and didn't know where else to turn and didn't want to go through chemo were having cancerous tumors shrink with herbs and acupuncture. And my current teacher also, although I've not seen it directly, speaks about treating those kind of issues as well. Do you think that Chinese medicine and Western medicine are compatible? I think they're compatible, but I don't think that they should be mixed because they, at least in terms of Chinese medicine, it's a, it's a whole functioning system. It is an engine that works. And what I see, especially in the case of TCM, is it becomes completely diluted. Again, you know, teachers of Chinese medicine stop believing in qi. <laughs> they stop believing in the whole. And then they kind of mix it with Western biomedicine. It becomes this weird watered down version of Western biomedicine using acupuncture needles. And it's not all that effective. And then it doesn't really stand up in double blind placebo controlled studies. And they say it's all, you know, like a hoax or whatever. So I think I don't think they should be combined. Because as far, I mean, I don't understand Western biomedicine because I haven't gone to school for that. But Chinese medicine is, it works. I mean, I've seen it work. It is a functional, holistic system that has worked for thousands of years. And I really think that, again, like if we take something like cancer or bronchitis or whatever, that again, Chinese medicine is unconcerned with those labels. It's concerned with what is going on with the yang activity, the yin activity, the jing, qi, shen, blood, body fluids, so on and so forth. How are they impacting the organs? And by simply focusing on the homeostasis of the body, I've seen Chinese medicine change these things drastically and dramatically, and I think that's its strength. So I don't think Chinese, you know, if it ain't fixed, don't broke it. I mean, the other way around. If it ain't broke, <laughs> yeah. don't fix it. <laughs> well, that, you know, that would be sort of the way Western medicine's trying to do it, like trying to, you know, trying to create this weird amalgamation. I just, I don't think... I don't think that's a service to this system that already functions very well. And, you know, I mean, again, I don't understand Western biomedicine to any great depth. I think it, so to answer your question, I think they're compatible in the sense that they should work side by side and that patients should seek both perspectives and seek treatments to see what works for them. But I don't think they should fuse into one sort of soupy thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just on your answer, you, you talk about how if they do mix, there's a potential for Chinese medicine to be watered down by adopting Western principles. And mm -hmm. partly this is because for the last 100, 100, 200 years, the West, just because of its scientific revolution, technology has really become the forerunner of just become, I guess, the most powerful country or not a country of system society and mm -hmm. because of that a lot of western medicine and ideas were shipped abroad now do you see 
the reverse happening? Do you see, for example, Chinese medicine entering Western societies or West entering Western medicine, apart from the issues that you brought up earlier with, like, for example, the West being more focused upon the mind-body connection? Do you see other examples? And, and what level of influence do you think the reverse is happening, like Chinese medicine is having on the West? That's a really good question. So I see a couple things. I mean, first of all, I see people being more open to viewing health in a holistic manner. And this is, you know, because of things like Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and sort of these ancient systems making contact with the West. And I also, again, like being just a, a student of Chinese medicine, what I have concerns with is, again, sort of the watering down of the medicine itself. So I see it kind of take on these new agey things that kind of obscure the mechanics of how it functions. So I think there's this dual thing where like, I think the ideas coming over are really great and people being able to be open to this idea of, oh, maybe my, the aspect of my connection to spirit and my connection to my higher sense of purpose and my connection to the broader environment impacts my health. I think that's really cool that people are, are more open to these ideas. But what's frustrating to me is that, that they then say, well, I'm going to go find an acupuncturist. And then they go to find an acupuncturist who does not have any skill with chi or any ability to enact these classical principles. They don't have a positive experience. And then they write Chinese medicine off as being charlatanism. And so for me, I'm really, I, I think the ideas are, and I, to be honest with you, I think the same has largely happened with Taoism, Buddhism, and, and yogic traditions of India, too. I think these ideas have come over, and there have been some very real teachers that have come to the West, but a lot of it gets watered down with this sort of new agey, just sort of modern mixture of ideas and sort of bordering on appropriation. And it, it <laughs> water, <laughs> and it waters, and it's like cosplay, kind of. I mean, it was watering down the efficacy and the very real mechanics of how these things work. And as far as I have seen, I mean, Taoism is the least represented in the Western world as far as I've seen. And, you know, and it, Chinese medicine is largely an extension of that. Buddhism had an influence on Chinese medicine for sure. So did Confucianism. But, you know, the line of Chinese medicine that I study with my teacher, Demo, is largely influenced by Taoist Nagong. And like, I just, I don't see that having made real contact with the West at all. And so I see people again enthusiastic about these broader ideas of of you know a holistic vision of health. They get excited, they go to see an acupuncturist who has no ability to contact chi in them or their patient. And even then sometimes good things happen. Sometimes their frozen shoulder gets fixed. I mean again, like there's a reason why, you know, I don't know uh, if this is a term outside the states, but dry needling, it's like you know, Western physical therapists using acupuncture needles to like break up knots and muscle tissue or whatever. Like that's not acupuncture. It's not Chinese medicine. However, of course, like it's helping people with musculoskeletal conditions. That's fine. But like in terms of like really helping and changing people's systemic health, I think the standard for the medicine, the, you know, standard for Chinese medicine is is quite low, unfortunately. And maybe that's just my own cynicism, cynicism in terms of what I've encountered. But, you know, I had to go down a lot of rabbit holes until I found uh, somebody who had the skill and the juice. I mean, again, like my paradigm shattering experience of, you know, being able to walk that day. And again, it's not like I was completely cured forever because I, I re-exacerbated the injury like a year later. But that experience was so paradigm shattering to me I don't think that's common in Chinese medicine. I don't think people like generally have that experience. 
And again, I think it's because the methods of any of these things, be it Taoism, be it Negong, be it even meditation, I don't think they are as available to the West as people would imagine. And so I think the export of the, these ideas are great. I just wish people had a bit more access to the actual mechanics of these traditions, the actual methods, because generally what they encounter is a sort of new agey, watered down hodgepodge of like the idea of it. And then people see it and sort of experience it. And again, I'm not trying to like, you know, yuck anyone's yum here. I'm not trying to condemn anyone's experience. I, you know, I think I, I can only speak from my vantage point and my journey through, through these arts. And I'm still a baby in these arts. You know, I mean, I, I met my teacher in 2016. You know, I've been studying since then. I studied Chinese medicine one year before that. So that's how much time I spent. Again, I mean, I'm, I, it's not like I can speak with this like ultimate authority here, but just generally what I've seen in sort of the community in the scene is enthusiastic patients who don't quite get the efficacy of the medicine that they want. And, you know, on that topic or on that word that you've used quite a few times, the rabbit hole, it seems it a big issue of this is being able to validate how good a practitioner is in the West. It, it's almost like there's something lost in translation and it's hard to get good practitioners or it's hard to really know if this person in front of you is capable of totally. you. And one example I'll give before I throw the mic to you, it's like this trope of like a Westerner going to Thailand or mm-hmm. Bangkok or, you know, Shanghai and then getting like a Chinese tattoo only to mm-hmm. find out if there's like, <laughs> you know, uh, noodle soup or something on it. There's just something lost in translation when it comes to this, this tradition. Would you agree with that? And, and maybe that's part of the reason why people are so skeptical. Yeah, well, again, I mean, I think people don't even have context. I mean, people, how, how do you evaluate what an effective Chinese medical practitioner is when you have no context for the paradigm? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, use, using something like specifically like Northern Taoist Negong, I would have never known that it does not, that visualization has nothing to do with the practices had I not had the good fortune to make contact with the teacher of the system and put in to practice the principles of the system. And mm-hmm. feeling how visceral and intense and the rapid physiological, psychological, and spiritual changes that have occurred in me through these practices, I mean, now it's obvious to me that just visualizing a process would not make it occur where, you know, you're restructuring your fascia and connective tissues. Again, we talk about bioelectricity and magnetism, like these really intense things happening. But before only having read, you know, peripheral books on the subject of these kind of things, uh, there's no way I would have known that, you know, that has no place in at least the arts that I'm I'm practicing in. And I'll, I'll give you a really specific example. There's a thing that happens in Nadan and Taoist alchemy, um, and it's called the white moon on the mountain peak. And it's above my level of practice. I haven't experienced it, but I have friends who have and, and senior students under my teacher definitely have. And Wait, but, but uh, just, just, just to interrupt for a sec, isn't that sure. a, isn't that the name of like a famous Taoist poem? I imagine it would be, certainly if it's related to Chuanjin Taoism, I certainly imagine it would be. I mean, this phenomena is called different things. So mm-hmm. I believe it's called true silver. I believe it, it is, I mean, it's often called Yuan Shen, the original spirit. It's poetically called the white moon mm-hmm. on mountain peak. So I would imagine it would be, that would make a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> go sure. on. So 
there's a part in and Nadon is very advanced. It's more advanced than Nagong. I mean, it is it is sort of like grad school, you know, graduate school Nagong. It is Taoist alchemy. It is you know doing very advanced things with the vibrational blueprints inside yourself. And there's a point in practice where you see a bright, piercing white light in you know behind your closed eyes in meditation. And there are no if ands or buts about it. If you've done the practice correctly, if you've set up the correct causes and conditions, you will see this piercing, blinding white light, and it will grow to look like a quote-unquote white moon on the mountain peak. Now, again, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You will know if you have done the correct practice because that will arise as the milestone to show you you have gotten there. But the methods in the West, don't, the people, you know, just the, the export of Taoism to the West doesn't have those practices or access to those methods. So what does that get watered down into? It gets watered down into visualize a white light, visualize a white moon on the mountain peak. So now you're imagining the thing that's actually supposed to arise as a milestone of having to done the practice correctly. And this is what I see happen in terms, certainly in terms of Tao. I mean, it's rampant in Taoism, just visualize the chi rising to the heavens and moving. And again, like, I don't want to sound pejorative here. It's just having made contact with a teacher who gave me some uh, practice that rocked my world. I mean, just, you know, it shattered my world, how strong and real this stuff is. And it's not vague and it's not airy and it's not fluffy. It is very, very, it is a specific causation chain that you're enacting. Point A leads to point B. It is a scientific empirical process, experiential science. And so, you know, if you do the experiential science correctly, you will see the quote unquote white moon on the mountain peak. But again, that gets brought to the West and you have these quote unquote masters who say, visualize the moon. It's like, again, visualizing the weight isn't going to make you strong. You know, visualizing the food isn't going to make your belly full. Like you have to enact these processes. And so that's just one way I see this stuff get watered down. And I see the same thing certainly occurring in Qigong and Negong and definitely in, in Chinese medicine, for sure. Well, can, can I ask, if these practices and if these processes are scientifically valid and they can be replicated, how come science is so quiet on it, if it can be replicated? Well, I think it's a, I mean, mainly it's a lack of contact. So I think uh, a lot of spiritual practitioners aren't really interested in being validated by Western science. <laughs> I don't I don't think they have any interest in bringing this to the world. Now I've seen like little glimmers, like there's, you know, there's that guy, Wim Hof, the Iceman. And, you yes, know, he's, yes. in, and I, you know, I like, but he's taken a very small piece of like what was a extensive Tibetan alchemical system. Like, you know, the practice of Tomo is a piece of a whole system called the six yogas of Naropa, which were a whole thing. And he took a very tiny piece of that and is producing very interesting results under scientific scrutiny. And I think that's totally rad that he's doing that because he's able to reject endotoxins under, you know, under lab scrutiny and not having immune response when other people would. He is submerging himself in ice without his core body temperature changing, like all that kind of stuff. And I think it's cool that like people like him have entered into the scientific dialogue, but the the practitioners of these arts in their their holism, I mean, there is an esotericism to these arts for a reason. I mean, first of all, they're dangerous. Like at a higher level, if you're building high levels of magnetism and you know and bioelectric energy chi in the body, like it gets dangerous. And so I think there's there's a reason why there was always an inner door, so to speak, to these arts. 
you know, for, for a reason. I think there are, and probably reasons beyond my understanding. I mean, again, I'm still a baby in all of this. I've just had the good fortune to make contact with a practitioner who has gone really deep down, down the barrel with this stuff. So I think part of it is just the a lack of, of contact between. And also, I think high-level practitioners are rare. Like, you know, you have all these people come forward who say, I can do this or do whatever. But I think it's a way smaller number of people who have access to these methods and have put them into practice than one would think. And I think mm. if somebody was really trying to contact the real deal, that they could be replicated under scientific scrutiny. Again, you got poking around, as far as I understand, Northern Thailand, Indonesia, like whatever you've got. You, you, and it's not just like poking around. It's like proving yourself and being given fake practices to see if you can discern the difference and still hang around and then see, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, to find this stuff is like a needle in a haystack as far as I understand. And so, you know, I think what's quite novel about, and again, like everyone's going to think their teacher's the man, but I think what's novel about my own teacher, Demo, is that he's, you know, I don't think he's the only person in the Western world who has this ability. He's the only person I've come across that is teaching it in a somewhat, it's somewhat in the public eye, making Mm -hmm. it somewhat publicly available. And so for me, it just saved me a lot of legwork because I was ready to go again, wander around the East for decades of my life trying to find this stuff. And thankfully, I, it's, he did the work for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now I have to do the practice. Mm. Well, let's, let's wrap this up. But before I do, I, I want to give you a chance to really sell this to the audience. So you, you've mentioned a few times that there's this air of fluffiness or this air of like voodoo mysticism, this almost like a hippie element to traditional Chinese medicine or just Eastern practices in general. But your argument is it's very scientific. It's actually very specific. How can people get into this? Like, is there books? Is there videos? Like, how does one actually enter this world apart from having contact with such a high level teacher? And what would your message be towards people who actually have an interest in this? That's a good question. I mean, you know, uh, shamelessly, my first instinct would just be to plug my own teacher because I was so grateful to to find him. I mean, again, like this is a dude in the Western world. His name's Damo Mitchell. He runs a Nagong school called Lotus Nagong. He's in the process of setting up a Chinese medicine school called Shantian College. Like, I think what he's doing is quite novel in the West. Outside of that, oh no, what were you going to say? And, and and where does he live? Right now, he lives in Portugal. He spent a lot of his life, you know, wandering around Asia. But I think he wanted somewhere nice and sunny just to to chill and relax. So he moved to Portugal. We, you know, we had all moved there shortly after a lot of the students. And so yeah, he right now he's in Portugal. But yeah, he and just when the pandemic happened too, he set up a whole thing called the Internal Arts Academy, which is essentially like a huge amount of theoretical basis in Nagong, in Tai Chi, and Bagua, and all these internal arts that, again, I just think it's a really novel thing to do. I've never seen this degree of esotericism sort of brought to the public and made available, you know, for people to access and, and, and have these theoretical teachings presented to them online. So that was, that was really, I think that's really novel. And again, just like, obviously, I, I keep saying this, Everyone's going to think their own teacher is the man. But in terms of like a general interest in these arts, like, you know, for me, it's being discerning in terms of just like listening to yourself and like really like find the thing that is unequivocal to you. Like I just plugged my own teacher, like, but don't take my word for it. Like 
see it, find it for yourself, put these things into practice and see if it really is creating these changes in you. And, you know, I think if somebody really has a hunger to access these methods, be it in Taoism, be it in Buddhism, be it in yogic traditions or whatever, like keep hunting until you find something that shatters your previous paradigms. Because for me, I was looking, I was poking around, you know, when I was like, what, 17, I read Autobiography of a Yogi and it like changed my life. And I was like, if this is possible, I will go to the ends of the earth to find out if it's real or not. And I met a lot of different spiritual teachers. Some claimed to be able to do different things. And some I was like, maybe I felt something, maybe I felt some vibration. It should be unequivocal to you. It should be undeniable to you. When you meet a skilled teacher in these arts, it should shatter your previous paradigms. And it's not like everything has to wow and dazzle you, but you you will have tangible benefits by practicing any of these authentic arts, regardless of what they are, be them Buddhism, Taoism, you know, Chinese medicine, whatever. So I would say hunt for authentic, tangible experience, tune into your own intuition and discernment, and don't stop looking until you found something that is being validated experientially to you would be my advice. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, there's no one book that's like a really good gateway into Chinese medicine? Well, it's funny. I mean, again, my teacher is kind of in the process of setting up a whole Chinese medicine course and in college. So, and it's new for him because, you know, he's taught Nagong and, and Tai Chi and all these things for years, but it's only 2016 was the first time he ever publicly taught Chinese medicine. So it's sort of a, a new thing for him. So to really get into Chinese medicine, I'm not sure what books I would look at. Well, he, he did write a book on, on the Meridian system a while, a while back uh, called Heavenly Streams, uh, released by, what's the big publishing company that releases all the Eastern books? Whatever. But it's called Heavenly Streams by Damo Mitchell. But that being said, like he's in the process of building a whole Chinese medical program. So I think he really wants to make that accessible to the West. Chinese medicine specifically, like yeah, I'm not sure in terms of books. I mean, again, like I, this is just the stuff I found that has really worked for me. And again, I'm I'm never going to be that guy that's like, I found the one true thing. It's just, I feel like I found something that is unique in the Western world that is usually quite hard to have access to. Cool. So basically, go have a try, go see it with your own eyes and be okay with having your paradigms shaken (laughs) totally totally yeah i mean open-mindedness is the best way to move through life and again for me it was like if i experience something then seems to be real if not then it's still a question mark and i you know i had this back and forth about is it real is it not all that and and i would have various experiences but again meeting my current teacher was the nail in the coffin it was like this is too real this is way too intense like whoa what have i stepped into and i think that is the quality of any of these arts be it Buddhism, regardless of its Theravada or Tibetan Buddhism or whatever, Northern Taoism or some, you know, yogic sect. Like if you are really stepping into those worlds, they are empirical, experiential sciences and they they are A plus B equals C. Like there are direct mechanics of how these things work. So my other bit of advice, I guess, would be to if you find a teacher of these arts, press them to explain how does this work and why? And can, you know, like, show me how. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 
Sweet. <laughs> thank you so much, Cole. Cool, um, of course, of course. Thank you for explaining a lot of this stuff to like, you know, a rookie like me. It's been fun, man. It's been totally fun. Yeah. So I really appreciate you jumping on and just going through all that what we covered, you know, acupuncture, differences in Western medicine, uh, Eastern medicine, you know, what happened during the culture revolution, just just your experiences yeah so we we re- definitely covered uh, a lot of the a lot of the grounds so thank blast, you man for sure thank you yeah it's it's always great to to talk to people who are open to explore these topics because they're what i find the most interesting you know like i'm i never shutting up about it to my friends and it, mm-hmm. it's just nice to to yeah to be able to explore these things for sure cool awesome thank you very cool, much man. bro definitely take care man thank you tuning into safety lost with stanley ching if you enjoyed this then please leave a rating or a comment i hope you're leaving with a new idea and make sure to follow us on instagram facebook and other places that can be found in the description